Welcome to the December 21st, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the findings from a natural history study of patients with familial platelet disorder with myeloid malignancy. Learn more about the role of HEXIM-1 as an essential transcription regulator in human erythropoiesis, and discuss the utility of residual disease as a predictor of relapse in CML patients stopping TKI therapy. We first examined data in the blood article entitled Natural History Study of Patients with Familial Platelet Disorder with Myeloid Malignancy by Leah Cunningham from the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues. The RUNX1 gene encodes a transcription factor that serves as the master regulator of hematopoiesis. RUNX1 somatic variants and translocations are notably among the most frequent genetic alterations in hematologic malignancies. In contrast to RUNX1 somatic variants, germline RUNX1 variants are relatively rare. In 1999, Song and collaborators reported that germline RUNX1 variants cause familial platelet disorder with associated myeloid malignancy, or FPDMM, which has been described in only 200 families worldwide. FPDMM is characterized by lifelong mild or moderate thrombocytopenia, qualitative platelet dysfunction, and predisposition to hematological malignancies. Other symptoms associated with FPDMM include eczema and psoriasis. Myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia are the most common hematological malignancies found in patients with FPDMM, although B-cell and T-cell, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, hairy cell leukemia, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and chronic myelomonocytic leukemia have also been reported. The development of hematological malignancies in FPDMM is accompanied by the acquisition of somatic mutations in genes associated with hematological malignancies. In the current article, the authors report on a longitudinal natural history study of patients with FPDMM, which is ongoing at the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center to gain a better understanding of the underlying disease pathology and help optimize clinical care for these patients. The study enrolled 214 participants between January 2019 and December 2021, including 126 individuals with confirmed germline RUNX1 variants and 85 familial controls without RUNX1 variants. RUNX1 variants were confirmed using CLIA-certified Sanger sequencing. Skin biopsies were performed to confirm whether the variant was germline or somatic. The patients underwent an annual physical exam, peripheral blood lab work, and bone marrow aspirate and biopsy. Platelets were analyzed by electron microscopy and Lumi aggregometer. The bleeding phenotype was determined by medical history and using the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis Bleeding Assessment Tool. Of 126 enrolled patients with confirmed germline RUNX1 variants, 15 were excluded due to variants that were benign or of uncertain significance. 
Therefore, 111 were included in the analysis, together with 85 controls. These 111 patients represent 45 unrelated families. Of 77 patients with available data, 91% had thrombocytopenia, 100% had abnormal platelet agrigometry, 46% had platelets with decreased dense granules, and 51% had abnormal bleeding scores. 39 unique RUNCS1 variants were detected among the 45 enrolled families. 18 families had nonsense or frame shift variants. 9 families had a missense variant in the RHD domain. 10 families had a partial or whole deletion of the RUNCS1 locus. 7 families had variants affecting splice sites. And 1 family had an intragenic duplication. Histologic evaluation of bone marrow samples from patients without malignancies revealed an increased number of megakaryocytes in 22% of patients, dysmegakaryopoiesis in 76% of patients, and reduced cellularity for age in 55% of adult and 81% of pediatric cases. 19 of 111, or 17% of patients, had a history of past or present hematological malignancies, including four cases of myelodysplastic syndrome, six cases of acute myeloid leukemia, two cases of chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, and one case of smoldering myeloma. Of 19 patients diagnosed with a hematological malignancy, 18 were relapsed or refractory to upfront therapy and referred for hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Allergic symptoms were very common, with 93% of patients experiencing one or more symptoms, including allergic rhinitis, eczema, allergic conjunctivitis, and asthma. 80% of patients had gastrointestinal symptoms, with gastroesophageal reflux occurring in 43%, and dysphagia in 27% of patients. 97% of patients reported a history of skin problems, with eczema being the most common in 37%. The authors concluded that their study highlights the importance of a multidisciplinary approach in FPDMM, early malignancy detection, and wider awareness of inherited disorders, their pathogenesis, and clinical course. In an accompanying commentary, Tim Ripperger from Hanover Medical School in Hanover, Germany, notes that the study findings expand our current understanding of FPDMM and provide additional groundwork for future growth in the field. Ripperger emphasizes that this study will create a large data pool with linked biomaterial, including peripheral blood, bone marrow, and skin biopsies, and a unique chance to further characterize the natural course of the germline RUNCS1 mutation-associated disease. Future research studies are likely to emerge from this valuable clinical resource. In discussing study limitations, Ripperger cites potential biases due to the inclusion of the most severely affected individuals, the impact of socioeconomic capabilities, limiting enrollment, and country of origin restrictions impacting participation. He believes that the key to overcoming these challenges lies in the successful linkage of additional independent data sets and external biobanking hubs into a network, and enabling enrollment of individuals with proven FPDMM uncovered in the context of national cohorts.
Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the Blood article entitled, Haxim-1 is an essential transcription regulator during human erythropoiesis by Zhu Ri Lu from the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, and colleagues. Effective erythropoiesis requires coordination between transcriptional and epigenetic regulators, as well as tight control of RNA polymerase II levels and activity. Studies to date have identified GATA1 and positive transcription elongation factor beta, or PTEF beta, as important players in this complex process. GATA1 promotes the expression of genes that encode for hemoglobin protein subunits and cell cycle regulatory genes while repressing the genes that are detrimental to erythropoiesis. On the other hand, PTEF beta is believed to be involved in regulating the specificity and transcriptional activity of GATA1-containing complexes. One component of the PTEF beta complex known to negatively regulate its activity is the hexamethylene bisacetamide inducible protein, or HEXIM, which is highly expressed in erythroid cell types. HEXIM-1 acts as a negative regulator of transcription by binding to PTEF beta in the context of the 7SK small nuclear ribonucleoprotein complex, rendering it inactive. Studies to date have shown that decreased levels of HEXIM-1 are associated with poor expansion and decreased viability of erythroid progenitors, indicating that HEXIM-1 plays an important role in erythropoiesis. Conversely, overexpression of HEXIM-1 is associated with enhanced erythroid proliferation, as well as increased expression of GATA1 target genes, even though the underlying mechanisms are poorly understood. In the current study, the authors aimed to better delineate the role of HEXIM-1 in erythropoiesis by conducting a series of experiments in human cell lines. Experiments were performed in HUDEP2 cells and human CD34-positive cells. HUDEP2 cells are an erythroid cell line that proliferate as erythroid precursors and are capable of terminal erythroid maturation. The authors also generated the HEXIM-1 overexpression cell line by cloning the cDNA for wild-type HEXIM-1, or HEXIM-1 harboring the Y271A substitution into P-receiver LV165 overexpression constructs. The cut-and-run assays were performed using the Epikeifer Cutana kit. The findings revealed that HEXIM-1 plays a key role in controlling erythroid gene expression and function by pausing RNA polymerase II at cell cycle checkpoint genes and increasing RNA polymerase II occupancy at genes that promote cycle progression. The overexpression of HEXIM-1 both increased and decreased the transcription of erythroid genes and caused a shift in the transcriptional program of erythroid precursors towards a fetal-like gene signature. Genome-wide profiling of HEXIM-1 revealed that it was increased at both repressed and activated genes. The authors also discovered genome-wide changes in the distribution of GATA1 protein and RNA polymerase II. Namely, the changes were most dramatic at the beta-globin loci, where there was loss of RNA polymerase II and GATA1 at beta-globin and gain of these factors at gamma-globin. This, in turn, 
led to increased expression of fetal globin, and BGLT3, a long non-coding RNA in the beta globin locus, involved in regulation of fetal globin expression, although it remains unclear whether GATA1 protein mislocalization is directly caused by HEXM1 or whether it can be attributed to altered transcriptional programs. These findings reveal important clues about the mechanisms controlling the switch from fetal to adult erythropoiesis. Additional experiments revealed that GATA1 is a key factor determining the ability of HEXM1 to repress or activate gene expression. Namely, genes that gained HEXM1 and GATA1 had increased RNA polymerase II activity and increased gene expression, while genes that gained HEXM1 but lost GATA1 had an increase in RNA polymerase II pausing and decreased expression. Taken together, these findings reveal a central role for HEXM1 in the regulation of erythropoiesis, including cell cycle progression and fetal gene expression. These insights could potentially be exploited for therapeutic benefit in future studies. In an accompanying commentary, Kyle J. Hewitt from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska, notes that the study by Liv and colleagues adds clarity to the important role that HEXM1 plays in erythroid gene transcription. The study also raises several relevant questions about the critical checkpoints for homeostasis during developmental and adult erythropoiesis, such as what is the role of enhancer-bound GATA factor complexes in regulating PTEF beta activity at gene promoters? How does PTEF beta activity initiate transcriptional programs associated with fetal erythropoiesis? And what is the mechanistic relationship between fetal programs and stress erythropoiesis induced by acute blood loss? Future studies should also address whether PTEF beta participates in GATA switching mechanisms and whether HEXM1 has redundant or unique functions relative to HEXM2, which is also highly expressed in erythroid cells. Hewitt concludes that the study by Leuve and colleagues provides a strong foundation to critically address these questions and gain a better understanding of the factors involved in the coordination of transcriptional programs that govern human erythropoiesis and ultimately the healthy functioning of the human body. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Lineage-Specific Detection of Residual Disease Predicts Relapse in Chronic Myeloid Leukemia Patients Stopping Therapy by Ilaria Pagani from the University of Adelaide in Adelaide, Australia, and colleagues. The outcomes of patients with chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, have improved dramatically over the past decade, largely due to the introduction of tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or TKI, therapy. Consequently, the overall survival of CML patients is now approaching that of healthy subjects. Moreover, the use of second-generation TKIs as first-line treatment has led to faster and more durable rates of deep molecular response. The idea that treatment-free remission can be a goal for chronic phase patients with long-lasting deep molecular response has been introduced recently based on the results from several studies. The French 
STEM trial showed that patients with long-term MR 4.5 corresponding to 0.0032% BCR ABLE1 ratio can safely stop treatment and that approximately 40% will remain in remission without therapy. A few other studies and real-world evidence have shown that the percentage of patients who remained in remission after treatment discontinuation may increase up to 50 to 60 percent if the loss of major molecular response is considered as the threshold to resume treatment. However, an accurate predictor of treatment-free remission capable of guiding the optimal timing of TKI cessation has yet to be identified. In studies to date, Shorter BCR ABLE1 halving time upon first-line TKI initiation and longer duration of TKI therapy or deep molecular response before stopping TKI have been associated with a higher likelihood of treatment-free remission. In addition, deep molecular response confirmed by digital droplet PCR appears to increase the likelihood of better outcomes after treatment discontinuation. In the current study, the authors aimed to test whether prospectively measured lineage-specific BCR-ABLE1 DNA could serve as an accurate predictor of relapse in CML patients meeting conventional criteria for TKI discontinuation. The study used peripheral blood samples collected from 48 CML patients in deep molecular response planned for TKI cessation. Lineage-specific BCR-ABLE1 DNA qPCR was performed according to previously described protocols. Molecular relapse was defined as the loss of major molecular response on a single test. The patients were considered evaluable for response if they remained in treatment-free remission for six months or more, or if they relapsed at any time. BCR-ABLE1 DNA was measured in leukocytes in a total of 240 cellular fractions from 48 patients prior to stopping TKIs and was detectable in 64% of leukocytes, 25% of granulocytes, 36% of monocytes, 88% of B cells, 57% of T cells, and 56% of natural killer cells. 40 patients attempted treatment-free remission for the first time, of whom 58% relapsed at a median of five months, while 18 maintained treatment-free remission with a median follow-up of 34 months. Interestingly, in patients who relapsed, the median BCR-ABLE1 DNA level was higher in granulocytes and in T-cells, but not in other lineages. In the 40 patients attempting first treatment-free remission, the authors were able to define three groups with different relapse risk. In granulocyte-positive patients, relapse risk was 100%. In granulocyte-negative, T-cell-positive patients, relapse risk was 67%. And in granulocyte-negative, T-cell-negative patients, relapse risk was 25%. Taken together, these findings indicate that BCR-ABLE1 DNA evaluated in granulocytes and T-cells, but not in other lineages, prior to TKI cessation, is a more specific predictor of relapse than BCR-ABLE1 DNA measured in total leukocytes. Moreover, these findings show that improved accuracy of prediction can be achieved by lineage-specific assessment of residual disease. In an accompanying commentary, Massimo Brescia, 
from Policlinico Umberto e Sapenza University in Rome, Italy, notes that the study by Pagani and collaborators provides a biological traffic light for predicting successful treatment-free remission in CML patients. The authors successfully demonstrated that sorting different subsets of leukocytes increases the predictive accuracy in defining the risk of relapse. According to these new criteria, patients with BCR-ABLE1-positive granulocytes are considered to have a red light with residual disease still present. Brescia notes that in these patients, a therapeutic switch to improve the depth of molecular response or prolonged treatment with the same TKI should be considered before discontinuing therapy. However, there are also challenges with implementing this new approach. The increased sensitivity of the method requires that laboratories become equipped to perform DNA-based patient-specific PCR, which is currently not used by all centers, and will require centralized laboratory analysis of samples for patients attempting treatment-free remission. In laboratories already equipped for this type of testing, an initial evaluation can help identify the patients where therapy can be safely discontinued, while in the long term, this technique can be used to monitor for an early recurrence. Brescia is optimistic that in the near future, BCR-ABLE1 DNA data could be combined with new prognostic factors to help guide a safe withdrawal strategy. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.